Welcome to episode 31 of the Creative Life Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Andrews, and today I'm talking with Annabelle Smith. Annabelle is the author of the digital interactive novel The Ark, US bestseller Whiskey Charlie Foxtrot, and A New Map of the Universe, which was shortlisted for the WA Premier's Book Awards. She was an inaugural Australia Council Creative Australia Fellow and holds a PhD in creative writing. We talk about a lot of things in this uh, episode today, from the craft of writing, plotting, speculative fiction, through to uh, her valuable advice on how to write a grant application, which for writers who may not have been successful up until now in their careers, myself included, I can get some tips for, and through to her opinion and, and thoughts on writing groups and much more. Uh, before I throw over to the episode itself, I will uh, add a little bit of a content warning in that there is a sprinkling of mild uh, coarse language throughout the episode. So if that might be a problem, if you're listening to this in a public space or in front of kids, uh, maybe whack on some, um, plug some earphones in or something. But uh, otherwise, I will talk to you as ever on the other side. Annabelle, welcome. Thank you. And welcome to Melbourne because you're here this week and I have very luckily nabbed you <laughs> in between your busy schedule. Mm-hmm. And so among these other things that you've been doing this week, you were here primarily, I think, first to teach for, for Writers Victoria. And the name of your workshop was Who, What, Why? The Plotting Triangle. And uh, I'm sure it does, I made that sound more <laughs> sound more dramatic than it was. I'm sure it is. And... I would love to talk to you about this thing called plot Mm. because some people get terrified at the thought of it. But as a writer um, and as a student while I was doing my master's, this was the area I actually studied a lot about um, about that tension between Mm -hmm. story and plot. Mm -hmm. Do you find that there is a tension between that or is that just me projecting (laughs) outwards? Um, I think... Plot was something I never thought about at all when I wrote my first two books. And then I got halfway through my third book and I couldn't get any further and I couldn't work out why. And I gave it to my husband to read. And he's not a writer. I said to him, just if you can see anything glaring, let me know. And he said, yeah, you've killed off your main character halfway through the story. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I don't think I even realised he was my main character because I never really did any plotting or thinking about my book in a structural way. It was all just very organic. So at that point, I thought, maybe I need to learn a little bit about plotting and how to how to do it loosely. So I did some research and I came across the eight-point story arc, which I found quite useful. But as I went on, I discovered some kind of gaps in that and other ways of looking at plot and I decided I will bring them all together so the kind of who what why essentially I say people don't care what happens unless they care who it's happening to so it's characters so essential to that to that plot and also even if we care who something's happening to and what what happens if it doesn't make sense if there aren't really solid reasons why they behave as they do and why they make certain choices then we break that suspension of disbelief that's so important for the reader and 
this probably and that kind of could go against the grain to some I'm not, I mean, mean genre writers who who work within this world of having to hit these certain plot points as they go ahead because that's part of the trope of mm. whatever it might be and it could like crime or, or romance for two examples although there are others mm-hmm. so yeah and but for other people, though, you will need to go back to character as well, even though those genres also have strong characters as mm. well. You're just going to make it the best <clears throat> you can, Yeah, which sounds really simplistic. But even in romance, for example, I read this thing that said essentially in romance everybody knows what's going to happen at the end, so the only reason that someone reads is because they care about that character. They want that character to get their love. So Yeah, so they're even more informed perhaps so yeah <laughs> that's why they're very savvy and they know yeah that's they're very um as readerships they yes know, they know they know what they want yes and they know what's good mm. and they know who's probably just not hitting the mark yeah as well. mm-hmm. so so without sort of going into the mechanics of the workshop itself so is it a physical sort of triangle you get them to sort of no, not really. It's actually more of a Venn diagram, but because there's three circles, it kind of forms a triangular shape. Uh, and I suppose essentially I do, I, I think of it as a triangle in the sense that each of those bits is as important as the other and you could turn it any way and it would still be the same. Yeah. So speaking of, of your novels, the, the one that I was able to finish before speaking today was, was The Ark, mm-hmm. which was uh, came out in 2014? I think so. It's a while ago now. <laughs> I think it was 2014, yeah. And was that – and is that that's, that is the last, most recent mm-hmm. one of your books yeah. to be published. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of things that I want to unpack about that. But first, but I'll just read the little blurb from it just to familiarise listeners with it. And I'm quoting here. The arc delves into fears and concerns raised by the environmental predicament facing the world today, exploring human nature in desperate times. At its heart, it asks, can our moral compass ever return to true north after a period in which every decision might be a matter of life and death and... The only imperative is survival. So it is a epistolary novel. Mm-hmm. That's its structure. And my favourite novel happens to be an epistolary novel, which is Bram Stoker's Dracula. But I've read others, and sometimes they can be tricky books to, I'm sure, write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you talk about that. And also as a reader to to have find have a, a satisfying overall reading experience mm-hmm. because the author needs to get a correct balance between a proper, perhaps these plotting this triangle you're talking about character mm. and and action mm. and and plot mm-hmm. so mm. what made you choose that structure initially i wasn't going to write it that way i was going to write a straight prose narrative And I was going to just include a few documents from within the arc as kind of little bonus content, perhaps between chapters or something like that. But as soon as I started writing, I found that my energy was really with the documents. They were fun to write and I was really enjoying the challenges and restraints of writing those. So I just dropped the other part. I didn't think at that point about whether it would be hard to tell the story that way. I just followed what I was finding fun to write. 
there were definitely some big challenges in it in the sense that the action scenes were very hard to convey. So I gave myself a series of types of communications. I mean, it's set in the near future, so they're not exactly the same, but they're roughly equivalent to, you know, a memo, an email, a text message. There's a program called Articulate, which records, makes transcripts of voice recordings. So there were certain things, like there's a scene where two of the characters have a punch-up, and I was just like, how on earth do I convey a punch-up within these constraints that I've set myself? So there were some real technical challenges there. And the way I overcame that problem was to have a video, um, a recording of, well, the audio recording of what happened, and then someone secretly videoed it, and then to have people talking about what they could see on the video. So it was, it was challenging. It was tricky in some ways. As as a writer, for me, um, and as a, and then as a writer reading it, I could see some some things that I would find attractive about this kind of structure. In that, really, it was talking about what you were just explaining there, it, it has to come back to dialogue. Really, mm-hmm. a lot of it is dialogue. Mm-hmm. In the transcripts, you are you are reading it as if it's sort of mm. like that, mm. and and. For some writers who may not want to get tied up with a lot of descriptive prose, mm. it could be yes. an attractive yes. prospect. I think as well there is, though, as you said, there is that danger of not engaging the reader emotionally. And so I also had to have some characters who were quite internal and what they express so the character of Ava she writes letters to her sister who's on the outside or emails not letters um, and she's doing a lot of reflecting on what's happening inside the arc so you needed I think some access to those thoughts and feelings because you don't just want the kind of you don't just want what's happening you want how it's affecting people that's right and you want the balance between public and private and there's there's those documents that are accessible to the people in the arc, but Mm -hmm. you want to be able to sort of like the headless horseman Mm. um, kind of exchange, which is a very private. Yes, secret. Yeah, Yeah, I thought that was a a very clever um, thing you did there. So, and then, so the epistolary novels of old were usually done with letters, but then Mm. secret diaries and Mm -hmm. like, you know, you're going Mm -hmm. deeper and deeper into the person's, um, yeah, secrets. And I think also... It's a really good structure uh, for speculative fiction as well. Do mm. you, would you agree? Yeah, it just seems to go with futuristic kind of ideas. Although it was interesting because when I showed it to a friend of mine who's quite a techie person, he said to me, I don't think in 30 years we'll be using any of these types of communications. We'll just be speaking everything and it will all just come out in one format. It will just convert everything to text. So there won't be all sorts of different communications. And I thought that that was very plausible. So in order to overcome that objection, I actually made up the conceit that inside the arc they were working with old technology and the reason that they were doing that was because of the paranoia of the guy that runs the ARC and he didn't want people to be able to hack into it. So he chose old programs that people would no longer have any expertise with. Mm. So it was a kind of future yet really not very far from now in a way. And 
I mean, but then I, I still, I think that we probably will be still, still using iterations of what we are now in 30 years because, I don't know, 30 years ago in Back to the Future, they were predicting we would be flying, flying through the cars. air on hoverboards, yeah. etc. Yeah. So maybe it's not going to move quite as fast as, but then I mean, who knows? Yeah. That's part of the, the interest of speculating. It is, absolutely. Yeah. And... The resources that are available out on the um, on the book's website, which is thearcbook.com, I deliberately didn't go to the site until after I'd finished because I wanted to form my own sort of mental uh, pictures of, of what the outlook's like, etc. And I was wowed <laughs> by its its sort of depth of, of resources and, and work mm. that went into it. And uh, there's all different sorts of mediums on there. Like there's it's beautiful, it's very illustrative, and there's audios and mm-hmm. videos. Uh, and in the book, you you thank the people who helped you put that who helped put that together for you. Yeah. And I was wondering what drove setting it up in the first place. Yeah, that's a good question, and it's a it's a kind of funny story of the tail wagging the dog actually because I wanted to apply for a grant. I'd never applied for a grant before, and I thought I'll just put one in to practice and see how the process works. So the Australia Council at that time were uh, offering these create Creative Australia fellowships. It was sixty thousand dollars. Um, spread over two years and it was for an interactive or multidisciplinary project so I was like oh yeah well I could turn the arc into an interdisciplinary sort of multimedia kind of thing so I'll apply for this grant um, and and put some ideas on paper about how that might work and then I got probably one of the most shocking phone calls of my life, which was the phone call where they told me I had got the grant. And I was like, oh, whoa, you know, and then after my shock and excitement wore off, I was like, oh, that means I'm actually going to have to do those things that I wrote in that application. And I have no idea how to do any of them. And I remember the first meeting I had with my brother. He's a 3D animator, so he's much more in that tech world than I am. And he said to me, have you thought about your interface? And I said, what's an interface? And he just started laughing. And I was like, oh, my God, I am up shit creek here. (laughs) So it was a really, really steep learning curve. But I had such amazing people that I worked with. They were all friends or friends of friends. And they gave their services out of mostly love or interest um and uh pizza and wine and a small amount of pay so i could i paid where i could out of the australia council money but i mean to actually pay full price for those kind of services is you know it's um astronomical so i couldn't possibly do it at the normal kind of corporate price and what kind of Talking more about how you worked with all these sort mm. of individuals coming together on the project, mm-hmm. uh, did you ever have to sort of stop and go explain your vision of the arc a little bit better? And did that help the book? Or was the book already written at that point? Or was it sort the, of parallel? The book was already written. And it was interesting because afterwards, when I worked through that process of working with the people who were helping me with the website, I really wish that I'd developed them side by side because there were things that they said 
that I would have incorporated into the book. So, for example, there's a space in the ark called the garden, and it's a very cavernous space, and it's it's got plants in, so it's very different to the kind of cold, almost spaceship-like feel of the rest of the facility. And when I saw the design that they had created for that space, I was like, oh, I wish I had um, set so many more scenes in that space. In fact, there were very few that took place in there. So there were some interesting changes like that that I probably would have made. Well, without spoiling the book, I hope, too much, um, you could revisit it when you think about Mm -hmm. when it was sealed and down the path, mm. um, which I only really realised when I re- read the book. I went back to the start. And yes, went, it tells you what oh, happens at the end. Yeah, but there's there's time a lot in between. Yes, <laughs> yeah. so maybe you could still. Well, at the moment, I'm working on a really cool project with Curtin University in Perth, where students there in the architecture department are designing a museum. So they're imagining that it's 50 years after the Ark was after everyone goes inside the ark during the post-peak oil chaos and it's 50 years later and the ark has been found and they're creating a museum to commemorate what happened there so they're actually designing those museums which is super fun that's so cool yeah it's so cool so I'm teaching in that unit I did it last year and I'm doing it again this semester Oh, that would just be so exciting just it's, to see people really reinterpret exciting. it and take take it on. And that was my, my next question because on, on the ARC uh, book website, you do encourage fan fiction, like feedback from, from readers as well uh, for people to, to add to the story or mm. fill the blanks in mm-hmm. between. And so uh, I'd love to know if what kind of material you have received back from people mm. or, the, or feedback or Yeah, so I had some really beautiful illustrations. One guy did these almost sort of graphic novel kind of drawings. They were just incredible. He'd just chosen four scenes and illustrated them. They were really amazing. And then I did have quite a few kind of architectural drawings that people had done of their vision of the facility. I had some more traditional fan fiction, so I had someone take one of the characters and imagine their life before they came to the Ark, and he wrote a short story about that. That was fantastic. I think the most creative one I had was someone wrote an exchange of emails between these two women who were in a mother's group together. And one of them was also um, a blogger, and she had a blog. uh, It was called Chaos Parenting Tips, and it had these um, (laughs) these sort of series of blog posts about how you could manage as a parent during the post-peak oil crisis. And it had these really funny stuff like don't take a picnic to the park because you'll be mugged for your food. And, And then these two women had an argument over the content in one of these blog posts. So it was really meta. She'd really played with form in the way that the book does. Mm. So that was a very exciting and creative one to read. Chaos parenting. It sounds like parenting today. Well, it? yeah, it's all chaos. But then imagine starvation oh, yeah. and freezing to death yeah. added to it. Of course, <laughs> yes. No one wants to. Oh, yes. Mind boggles. And... Although you did do a short print run of the book, it was always meant to be an e-book. Yes. Um, and you were a driving force behind its design and publication as well. And what did you learn about the experimental pioneering mm. arm of publishing? Mm. The experimental pioneering arm of publishing is 
dead in the water. That's what I learned. Oh. Yeah, it was it was really interesting because initially initially I looked around for a publisher for it. I didn't want to self-publish it. That wasn't my initial plan. And I looked around for quite a long time. Okay, who's doing work in this area? And what I discovered is that publishers were doing perhaps every couple of years one really mega flagship interactive project and they would have Stephen Fry doing audio things and they would have celebrities and all the bells and whistles and there would be lots and lots of publicity around it and that would be literally the only thing they were doing that was interactive or multimedia or you know cross-platform. I could not find anyone that was doing something like I was doing and publishing books like that there were people who were doing one-off apps like the silent history but they were doing their own work they weren't publishing other people's ideas and apps so I couldn't find anyone who was doing what I wanted to do so I thought well I have to do it myself and that grant would have certainly sort of helped and and like not only get it done but I think maybe show to show to people or other artists thinking that they could pick their own path that Mm. there are opportunities out there yeah if they know how to sort of write a grant which is Uh, yeah that's uh, a skill in itself isn't it yeah and so because is that the only Australia Council grant that you've received no I've had another one and I've also had several from the Department of Culture and the Arts in WA because I've been very lucky with my grants what one piece of advice would you be able to give people who are writing grants? Because it is a fraught mm. area. There mm. is just so many, so much, yeah. so little money for so many people yeah, who deserve that's right. it. So there is a lot of what they call unfunded excellence. So grant applications that meet all the criteria are of a very high quality that they would want to fund if they had the money. And in the end, what gets an application over the line is a sense of urgency that if we don't give this person the money now, they might miss out on an opportunity. So you have to somehow create a sense of um all the planets are aligned for me to do this thing right now and I need your help to do it right now Um, because if I wait six months then the kind of buzz might have worn off or whatever else it might be so you have to somehow convince them that you need the money now and that is what will push your project above something that is equally good but perhaps doesn't seem as urgent. So that could work for someone for example who might be working on a project that has a historical relevance or context Mm -hmm. and they're coming up to an important anniversary of said event that is that the kind of urgency that's the kind of thing but it's also just let's say there's been a little bit of a flurry of interest in your work and um you want to kind of strike while the iron's hot or it could be that you've got an agent or a publisher interested in your work and you want to get it to them in a timely fashion before they've forgotten about you moved on so there's there's all kinds of ways that you can create that sense of urgency. And for a writer to do that, they need to sort of get over any sort of self-consciousness they might have about sort of tooting their own horn. Oh, you absolutely have to toot your own horn. Mm. No one is going to toot it for you. And there'll be other applicants in there who are doing it. So if you don't, you will not get a grant. Unless you are just off the scale brilliant um, and you win a major prize for your first book or something like that, 
then in which case you'll probably get the funding even if your application isn't that great but generally speaking you have to sell yourself really well speaking of and this moves us nicely over to another area about um talking about digital spaces and tuning your own horns or being present and visible. Mm -hmm. You have quite an active um, blog Mm -hmm. or uh, attached to your own website Mm -hmm. uh, where you talk a lot about the nature of writing and and the ups and downs and um, the business of it. And tell me why you started to sort of um, do that. Yeah, a couple of years ago... I was doing a lot of book club visits and the question I would get asked all the time at book clubs is, do you make a lot of money from writing? And I was really fascinated by this idea that people outside the industry thought that writers made money because hardly any writers I know make money. And so I decided to write a blog post about it. Oh, that's right. I got my, I did my tax return. So I actually around that time also sat down added up all the money I'd earned that year and it was about seven thousand dollars and that was from royalties public lending rights maybe a couple of speaking events um some teaching and that was the entire month writing related income I'd earned that year and so I actually published those figures on the internet and on my blog with a kind of breakdown of of that and the post went viral. I've never had a post go viral before, but all these people were tweeting about it. And I realized, wow, no one talks about money in very concrete terms. No one says, this is how much or how little I've earned. Yeah. So I realized that people were really responding to that honesty. And I also felt that when I started out, I went through a lot of kind of difficult feelings because I felt that I was a failure because my book had only sold 1500 copies and it hadn't won any awards and I hadn't been invited to speak at Sydney Writers Festival or whatever it might be and I was like I'm a failure I might as well give this up and later as I got to know more writers and started talking to people I realized Actually, my experience was very standard for an early career writer. You, you're you likely to make little money, to get very little attention, to not get reviewed. And all of those things were normal. And I, I feel like I would have had a lot less heartache if I'd known that, if I would have been able to benchmark myself and say, I'm actually doing fine for where I'm at. And I suppose I just thought, well, maybe I can give other writers that thing that I wish I'd had myself. It's similar because to my sort of blogging experience because every year I do do a similar sort of breakdown of how I made money. Yeah, I've read those. The Mm -hmm. previous year. And, yeah, people do love to (laughs) get a sticky bit at those. I don't think I have ever sort of broken down into money. No, but I I break it down in percentages percentages Mm. as to where where it Mm. does come from. Mm -hmm. And um, even though the blogging world is, is... somewhat different to the writing world um i think writers would agree that any year could be different from the previous year it nothing there's a huge variety yeah there's a variety and things sort of wax and wane and and it's good to be diverse and many writers will say that they don't earn a primary living 
income from writing anyway mm. and so that you, they do need to diversify. Yeah, you need to have a lot of strings to your bow. So, you know, I do chairing, um, I do public speaking, I do teaching for all sorts of different writer centres and groups. Um, so you need to kind of do a lot of things to to get money rolling in because the royalties themselves for most people pay very little and also you might have a long gap between books so you know you might well I certainly have really long gaps between my books so I'm probably only earning royalties in that first year after the book comes out and then there might be three years where there's no royalties so um, you you kind of have to find other things to do. And talking about sort of traditional versus self-publishing, I mean, you're now now you have a self-publishing experience under your belt. Mm. Um, do you then now understand why people sort of do go down that path, either sort of one hundred percent or they're more of a hybrid mm. kind of a writer? Or how does? I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, would you do it again? Um, I wouldn't. No, I didn't enjoy the process. I didn't want to do all the stuff associated with that I just realized after exploring that option that I really just want to be a writer I don't want to have to understand how to format my book for various programs it doesn't interest me and I also found it really dissatisfying in terms of results so I think discoverability is a gigantic issue in terms of self-publishing I think very few writers actually make a substantial number of sales so in commercial terms my book was quite a disaster Uh, in creative terms I was super happy with it but it just didn't sell people didn't find out about it I think as well there was a factor that it was just too experimental so a lot of the people who had read Whiskey Charlie Foxtrot or my first book didn't come with me to that book because they thought it was too weird they were either like oh speculative fiction you know people just think about talking plants and spaceships and it's not that at all but that's their idea of anything that sort of smells of science fiction they're like oh not for me and I think because it was experimental in form as well, people would say, oh, a story told through um, digital documents, no thanks. In fact, the people that did read it, the most common response I got was, I didn't think I would like it because of those reasons, but I actually loved it. But I think a lot of people weren't ready to make that leap. So I didn't bring my existing readership with me. Mm. And I didn't really gain a new readership either. Um because I didn't have the weight of a publisher behind me with that kind of seal of approval that you get. And the kind of support that they can give you Mm -hmm. as well to sort of get it out there. And the marketing and all of that, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I know all about all these things. Yes, you do indeed, (laughs) yeah. Oh, wow, there is lots of things we could unpack from that. I mean, oh, yes. One thing I think about self-publishing is that I think... It's fine to self-publish if you have done a lot of research and you're confident that you're working in a genre that goes well in self-publishing. And also if you're prepared to really do the homework and learn about the marketing and work really just as hard after your book has come out as you did in Mm. writing it. If you're that kind of person, then self-publishing can work for you. But what I think a lot of times happens is that people are too frightened to send their book to a publisher 
or they don't think it's good enough and they self-publish because they think it's an easy option. And I think if they do that, they are selling themselves short because it's not really an easy option. And if you do it kind of half-heartedly, in some ways you might as well really not do it at all. Mm. But I think it depends as well on people's reason for wanting to be published. Some people want to share a story with their family and some people want to tell a story they don't necessarily care if it sells a lot or reaches a wide audience. So I think that question is different for everyone. Yeah, motives are certainly a, um, are very important. I, I remember now what I was going to ask before. Talking about existing readerships and how you said that your first novel audience may not have mm-hmm. carried over to yeah. dark. Yeah. And, and so... That would be an example perhaps of someone saying, well, then that's why writers do stick to their wheelhouse of Mm -hmm. whatever it is they first come to be known for because Mm. it is safer perhaps. Mm -hmm. But for me, I always like to try and look at things in a different way, saying, well, that that might become boring then for a writer. And how Mm. will they sort of grow and and Mm. learn more about the craft and sort of how do you... What do you think about that sort of... I kind of get why people do that because they want commercial success. And I think on some level nearly all writers yearn for commercial success. But I think there's a question of which is most important to you, commercial success or creative success. And for me to feel that I've done the project I want to do and I've done it in my way is more important than how many books I sell. I, I can't have someone tell me what kind of book to write I get an idea for a story I get an idea for the form that it needs to come in and that's the story I want to tell if someone had said to me after Whiskey Charlie Foxtrot that book went great now write another family drama I would have been like no because I've got this other story that's burning up in my head and sorry but I know it's risky but this is the story I need to tell right now so I get why people do it, um, but it's not for me. Yeah, I think creativity requires risk-taking. Mm, absolutely. Because then it's not – if not, then is it really creative because you're not – I suppose to a degree there's still some creativity, but to me it's not that sort of what we think of when we think of a creative person. I think of that as being innovative and – and experimental and trying new things. Yes. And talking about my my publishing record, uh, you are one of the contributors to uh, my title from last year, Trust the Process, yes, which is, talking about creativity, uh, 101 tips on writing and creativity. And your particular tip was about um, writing groups and, mm-hmm. and the value of them. So I was, I'll just read a little extract from that now before I, I dive into the questions. And you say that I was invited to join my first writing group by my creative writing tutor in my honours year, alongside a handful of other students. In those early days, I had little perspective on my own work and feedback from others helped me develop my sense of what came alive on the page for readers and what fell flat. In addition, meeting regularly motivated me to to keep producing work after my formal studies ended so that I would have something to share. In addition, to, in addition to insights about my own work, I benefited enormously from the process of critiquing other people's writing. I learned to identify not just when something wasn't working, but why. 
Was it an action out of character or a character's thought or dialogue out of voice? Was there too much backstory or not enough? Was the scene bogged down with exposition? Was the dialogue stilted or unnatural? Recognising problems with structure, character, pace, dialogue and so forth taught me to be aware of these elements in my own writing. End quote. Mm -hmm. So we have already touched on a couple of these things earlier when we were talking about plot and character. And But I was going to ask you about how do you go about delivering critiques to other to other writers um do you how do you how do you manage to be both honest Mm. um uh, if especially if something is quite yeah requires a lot of work and and how do you be sensitive to feelings yeah well i think that you've got to always go with a kind of time on a shit sandwich method which is you know the bread which is the sort of nice the nice bits and then the kind of sticky bit inside (laughs) um so yeah you've you've got to start by giving them some encouragement because you never want to crush someone's spirit. Um, So start with, you know, everything that's working. You know, I love the voice. I love the main character. Um, It's a really interesting premise. So anything that you can find that you think is working, give them that first. And then, I mean, if the work is really problematic, if it's absolutely riddled with problems, I would just pick the two most glaring and overarching problems and say to them, uh, this was a little bit problematic for me because I found um, myself not really relating to the main character or whatever it might be. So you kind of have to phrase it quite delicately and perhaps ask a couple of questions like what made you choose this person as your protagonist or what made you choose this point of view or even did you want your character to be unlikable (laughs) um so just to kind of get them thinking and perhaps realizing for themselves what mistakes they might have made or how they might approach it differently and then finish with something encouraging as well like overall you know you've got some great ideas here and um good luck and you know that kind of stuff so i think that that kind of um structuring of it so that they're not completely devastated is important i had a a really great relationship with my phd supervisor and he was just hilariously frank so when he read my second novel he wrote in the margin and this was about my main character why is charlie such a dickhead (laughs) and i was like oh what do you mean I was really sort of um stunned but actually going back over I realized he was a bit of a dickhead and I think it's okay to say something brutally honest with someone if you have a real trust with them and a history with them you can be perhaps more frank not that frank maybe but if you're kind of in a group with people you don't know that well and you're starting out together you've got to tread really carefully Mm. um i suppose you've got to treat other people the way that you would hope that they would treat you um don't feel too bad i I had feedback on my um ya novel mm -hmm. and i was asked why is someone so Mm -hmm. such a bitch okay and i'm like she's well the thing it's an interpretation and i'm like she's not she's she's assertive mm. she's her own person mm-hmm. but i wouldn't call her go so far as to call her a bitch but then i think 
but maybe I do need to tone it back if, you know, it's that and you've got to go and that's when as the writer of the work you then need to decide how much you take on or, yeah. or reject of the person mm-hmm. who's given you that critique as mm. well. What I find is if more than one person says the same thing, it's probably a problem. Uh, occasionally someone will give you feedback that feels really out of left field and you'll just think, no, that doesn't that doesn't sound right, doesn't sit right with me. Mm. So you, you, there is a bit of um, practice in learning what to take on and what not to. I think you have to follow your gut a little bit with that. I, I agree completely. As we come to the end of our time together today, I do end each conversation with this question. Um, what piece of advice do you give to people who want to be more creative? Because as we've already said, it can be risky. Mm. I think the most important thing, and it's taken me a long time to understand this, and I still struggle with it, it's just to enjoy the process. It's not about the publication. It's not about the awards. It's not about the money, certainly. It's actually you doing whatever you do and enjoying it is the most important thing. So just focus on that. Beautiful. Annabelle Smith, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Annabelle's home on the internet is annabellesmith.com and that's a great place to go to access a lot of the information we're talking about uh, in the in the podcast episode. If you're interested in particular in the numbers and money side of writing, uh, I will point you in the direction of her How Writers Earn Money series of posts, which are, are very findable from the front page of her of her website. Uh, you can also find her on Twitter at Annabelle Smith AUS. As also we said, uh, talked about briefly at the end, Trust the Process, uh, 101 Tips on Writing in Creativity is the book that she, of mine that she contributed to last year and that is available from the shop on my website, karenandrews.com.au forward slash shop in either print or ebook form. Uh, but as I've always say it is also at other major platforms such as Victopia, uh, Amazon, Book Depository etc or you can order it from your local bricks and mortar bookstore uh, in Australia at least uh, but internationally uh, yeah, I would point you in the direction of say Amazon. Thanks for listening and until next time take care.